Psalm 86, 1 through 17, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped and comforted me. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on prayer, and we're looking at the Psalms to learn about it. Uh, If you want to know what prayer is and how to do it, then you need a teacher. Getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. And this morning we're talking about petition. Petition is just a fancy way of talking about asking God for the things that you need. That's all petition is. In, in many ways, it's like the most basic and most primal of prayers. It's the prayer that says, God, please help. God, please do something. That's all petition is. Um, not only is it the most basic and primal of prayers, though, it's also one of the most challenging and problematic. Why? Uh, when we think about petitioning God in prayer, uh, one of the big problems is this. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and he is, then not only does he already know everything we need, but God is going to do what God is going to do regardless of whether we ask him, right? So why bother asking him? See, oftentimes when we think about petition, there can be this sense of futility about it. That's an intellectual problem, but here's the thing. Um, Regardless of that intellectual problem, we pray. We're going to pray. And the real problem is this. What if God doesn't answer my prayers? 
What if I pour my heart out to God in prayer and he just ignores me? You see, there's, there's a sense of underlying fear a lot of times in our petitions. Because when we talk about bringing our petitions to God, we're talking about the things that are the most precious, the most intimate, and the most urgent things in our life. And it is incredibly vulnerable to open your heart to God like that and trust him with these things. There's an underlying fear that accompanies our petitions. It's so vulnerable and also heartbreaking if God doesn't answer us or if he doesn't answer us the way we want. So there's an intellectual problem. We could call it the problem of futility, but there's also an emotional problem. We could call it the problem of fear. And nothing will put the kibosh on a powerful, life-changing, effective, confident prayer life faster than a sense of futility and fear. So the question is, how are we going to go about asking God for the deepest needs of our heart without being crushed by futility and fear? The interesting things about the Psalms is that most of the Psalms are actually petitions. The Psalms are full of people requesting and asking and making their petitions to God, which means that the Psalms are a wonderful place to look to help us learn about petition. And this psalm that we just read this morning is about as good a place to look as any. So let's learn three things this morning about petition. We're going to see the promise of petition. We're going to see the purpose of petition. And lastly, the power for petition. All right? The promise, the purpose, and the power of petition. All right? First, the promise. One of the really interesting things about this psalm in particular, I discovered it as I was studying this week, all of the commentators mentioned this, that uh, this psalm is comprised mostly of verses that come from other psalms. Almost every single verse in this psalm is a verse that you can find in some other psalm, all right? Now, that means that on the one hand, um, uh, this isn't really a very original or spontaneous prayer, but... On the other hand, it does make it kind of a model prayer or, or a template for prayer. So, for instance, kind of like the Lord's Prayer, you know, when the disciples went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray, Jesus did not give them a series of principles um, telling them how to be original and spontaneous in their prayer life. He gave them a model prayer. He gave them a template for prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This model or template for prayer is a very valuable tool in our lives. We keep saying throughout this series that if you want to learn how to pray, one of the best and most powerful things you can do is make the Psalms a part of your daily life. Because the Psalms give you a language. They give you a vocabulary for prayer. It's kind of like a mold. You know, the more you pour yourself into the mold, the more the mold shapes you. And this Psalm itself is a great example of that. When we look at this psalm, what we see is a picture of someone whose whole prayer life is so shaped by all of the other psalms that it has completely shaped and molded this prayer. Is it very original? No. But if you ask, does this prayer show us someone whose whole mind and heart and life is just completely shaped by God and his word? The answer is absolutely. So if this prayer is a model, then what's the model showing us? One of the other things all of the commentators mentioned about this is that this prayer is actually chock full of petitions. There, in, in many ways, there are more petitions, more requests per square inch of text in this psalm 
than in many of the other psalms. It's just full of it. It's almost over the top. God, please do this. Please do this. God, please do that. Please do that. Over the top with petitions. Now, here's why this is so important. God invites you to ask him for the things that you need. He invites you to do it, but even more than that, there's a promise here. And the promise is not that just that God is inviting you to ask, but he's delighting when you do ask. God delights to answer your prayers. Where do we see that? If you look at the first four verses of this psalm, you see that it's, it's full of requests. Now, we're going to get back to those in just a moment. But after making all of these requests, in verse 5, David says, and David is the one who prayed this prayer. The heading says, A Prayer of David. It says, David said, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. In other words, David is saying, God, I am asking these things of you because this is the kind of God you are. In fact, in verse 7, he says, in the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. You see, there's a confidence here. He doesn't say, you might answer me. He doesn't say, oh, I sure hope that God answers me. No, he says, you do answer me. Over and over in this prayer, David keeps asking God for the things that he needs, but he also keeps giving reasons that he believes that God is going to answer his prayer. So, for instance, in verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see that? Over and over in this prayer, David keeps giving the reason that he can be so confident in God's care. What is it? God's character. In fact, this is probably the main lesson of the whole psalm, and it's simply this, that our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. Our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. He's saying, God, you've done it before. I know that you're going to do it again because this is the kind of God that you are. Our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. Dear ones, the promise of petition is simply this. God delights to answer your prayers. So what's the application? Ask him. Ask. And ask big. Ask big. God loves it when you ask him for the things you need. So for instance, there's this place in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the magician's nephew, uh, in which these children get into the magical kingdom of Narnia, which is ruled by the great lion Aslan, who's really Jesus. And Aslan sends the children on a mission, as he does frequently in these books. And at one point, the children um, get hungry, and they realize, uh, they start talking to each other and saying, well, nobody arranged for our meals on this mission. Um, but there's a talking horse nearby who, who hears them, and he says, well, I'm sure Aslan would have if you had asked him. And the little girl says, well, wouldn't he know without being asked? And the horse says, well, I've no doubt that he would, but I've sort of an idea that he likes to be asked. Friends, God loves it when you ask him. He delights to answer your prayers. So ask and ask big. That is the promise of petition, but it leads to our next point, which is the purpose of petition. Because here's where we come to the heart of this prayer. 
Um, everything we just said kind of begs the question, and the question goes like this. If you could just ask God for whatever you want, no matter what, does this mean that he's just going to give it to you? Because if that's the case, then there are some big problems. And, and one of the biggest is this. It's obvious that the world, this room, is filled with all kinds of people whose hearts have been broken and, and maybe even lost their faith in God because they did ask and asked big, but God didn't answer their prayers. That is heartbreaking when that happens. It's no doubt happened to many of you. It's happened to me. The other problem is this. Does, does this promise of petition turn God into kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus? Does this mean that you just ask him for whatever you want, no matter what it is, and he's just going to give it to you? Doesn't this make prayer kind of selfish? The answer is it doesn't if, if you understand the purpose of petition. What is that? Well, if you look at the structure of this psalm, you can actually see it in our bulletin. It's, it's three sections. One, two, three. Three big sections. The first and the third sections are full of petition. The middle section is mostly praise. Friends, that is not an accident. The center of this prayer is mostly praise. So, for instance, verse 9, it says, All the nations will come and glorify your name. Or verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, and I will glorify your name forever. The center of this prayer, the very heartbeat of this prayer, is, is that God's name would be glorified. Now, what does that mean? In the Bible, um, names are incredibly significant. Uh, to name something is to define it. To have a name is to have an identity. So, Frequently, when God comes to someone in the Bible and he gives them a new identity and then he calls them into his purposes in the world, gives them a mission to serve him, very frequently he'll give them a new name. So Abram becomes Abraham, or Jacob becomes Israel, or Simon becomes Peter, or Saul becomes Paul. In the Bible, your name is the manifestation of your character in your identity, which means that in the Bible, God's name is the manifestation, manifestation of his character, his identity, his very essence in the world. God's name reveals God to the world. So the center of this prayer is all about glorifying God's name. Now, we talked about glory last week. The Hebrew word glory is a word that literally means weight. I heard a, a preacher once illustrate it like this. He said, um, think about our solar system. And in our solar system, all of the planets center around the sun. Why? Because the gravitational pull, the weight of the sun, makes all the other planets center around it. Because the sun is by far the heaviest thing in the solar system. Now, what would happen if one of the planets decided it didn't want to center around the sun anymore? What would happen if one of the planets decided it just wanted to go off and do its own thing? Didn't want to center on the sun anymore. The result is it would be chaos. It would, that planet would be careening off in all kinds of different directions. It would be crashing into other planets. The result would be disaster. To glorify something means to make it your center of gravity. So when this psalm says, I will glorify your name, it's saying, God, I want to center my life around you. Because if I don't, everything in my life is going to fall apart. God, I want to center on you. I want to glorify your name. I want you to be my center of gravity. 
And this comes out most clearly in verse 11. You know, I said that verses 8 through 13 are the center of the prayer, that center section. If verses 8 through 13 are the center of the prayer, verse 11 is the center of the center. It's the heartbeat of the heartbeat. In fact, you remember how I said that that most of the other verses in, in this psalm come from other psalms? This is the only verse that doesn't show up anywhere else. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. This verse 11 is like a rare, precious jewel. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. Now, what does that mean? That word unite is a word that means to bring everything together into one. It's like the word integrity. You know what the word integrity means? It comes from the word integer. Integer means one. That means that that everything you are, your mind, your heart, your will, your choices, everything that you are is all gathered together into one single focus on one thing that you center on. You're centered on one single thing. Now, I need to tell you, this is where things get really challenging for us, especially in our culture. There are different images that the Bible will use to describe our relationship with him, okay? So for instance, um, Sometimes the Bible will say God is our father and we're his children. There are different images that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with him because no single image can possibly describe our relationship with God perfectly. Another image is where the Bible will say, well, God is the bridegroom and we're the bride. The different images describe different aspects of our relationship with God. The image in this psalm says that God is our master and we are his servants The word that David uses most often when he's talking to God in this psalm is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a word that basically could be translated master or sovereign king. It's the the word, if you look at the the bulletin, uh, anytime you see the word Lord there, but it's a capital L, but the rest of the letters are lowercase, that's the word. That, that David uses to talk to God most often in this psalm. And look at the way he talks about himself. Three times in this psalm, he refers to himself as your servant. David is saying, God, you are my king and I am your subject. God, you are my master and I am your servant. Now that's hard for us because we're far more open in our culture to hear these other images like God is a father or God is a bridegroom. You know, he's like a lover, but a king? A master? It's very hard for us to hear that in our culture. That sounds abusive to us. It sounds oppressive to us. And the reason is because, you know, in the history of our country, socially and historically, that's been true. I mean, think about how our country began being liberated out of the oppressive kingly rule of Britain. Even more devastating than that in the history of our country is the history of racist slavery and white supremacy that has ravaged this country. It's very difficult for us to hear talk about a master-servant relationship and hear it in any other way other than being oppressive. In fact, if we think about it individually and culturally, it gets even more difficult because in our culture, when we talk about what it means to flourish as a human being, by far the dominant narrative for what it means to flourish as a human being in our culture is the freedom narrative. The freedom narrative says 
Every human being should have maximum freedom to discover and express their authentic self. That means that it's kind of like that last line from the poem Invictus. You remember that? Um, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We say, in our culture, we say, I am my own master. I am my own king. The idea of serving anyone or anything else, to us, that sounds horribly oppressive. But here's the irony. You're already serving something. Something already, you're living for something already. And whatever that thing is, if it's not God, you're a slave to it. Rebecca Manley Pippert is a wonderful writer who put it like this in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker. She said, Uh, Whoever or whatever controls us is really our God, even if we hate it. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one to whom we submit, for he has the ultimate power. There are no bargains. Dear ones, to have a divided heart means that something other than God is at your center. When David says, unite my heart to fear your name, he's saying, God, I want to center on you. I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. I want to honor your purposes in this world, not mine. Now, that is the purpose of petition, okay? It is not primarily to get God to center on us and our purposes, If that was the primary purpose of petition, then prayer really would be a very selfish, self-centered, self-serving thing. No, the purpose of petition is not to get God to center on you, it's to get you to center on God. Why? Because only by centering on him will that keep your life from spinning out of control and falling apart. Now, here's the question. How does all of that relate to our uh, petitions? Well, here's how. Uh, Look at what David is praying for in the first four verses of this psalm. In verse 1, he says, incline your ear and answer me. In other words, he's praying that God would pay attention to him. I mean, this is pretty basic. Have you ever, like, been trying to get somebody's attention and they ignored you? How does that make you feel? Makes you feel um, ignored, um, unvalued. It makes you feel insignificant. It's an awful feeling. Because every single human being has a deep need for significance. And that's what David is praying for here, to know that his life matters. But look at verse 2. He goes on and he says, preserve my life and save me. Okay, now that's a prayer for protection. In, In addition to our deep core need for significance, every human being has a core need for security and protection. So, Um, lastly, look at verse 4. He says, gladden my soul. In other words, God, bring joy and flourishing and blessedness and happiness and and pleasure into my life. Do you realize what we're talking about here? I mean, these things are the basic core needs and desires of every human life. I mean, these are the things that every single human being needs. Significance. Security and protection. Love. Intimacy. Happiness. Joy. Joy. These these are the basic core needs of our life. Now, here's what this means for us. You may be praying about a specific situation, but underneath that situation is a core basic need, okay? There's a prayer underneath the prayer. So, for instance, maybe you're praying about a romantic relationship with a specific person. 
If the purpose of petition is to get God to center on you, and then you don't end up with that specific person, you'll end up bitter and angry at God. But if the purpose of petition is to get you to center on God, then you can have confidence that God is going to answer the prayer underneath the prayer. That, that, you know, it might mean that even if you don't end up with this specific person, even if you don't marry that person, even if you don't get married at all, um, you may not marry that person, you may not get married at all, but you can know, you can have confidence that that God is going to honor the, the prayer of everything that marriage points to, which is love and intimacy and, and companionship. You can know that God is going to honor that prayer. It's the prayer underneath the prayer. Or for instance, maybe you're praying about a specific job situation. If the purpose of prayer is to get God to center on you, and then you don't get that specific job, then you'll be crushed and defeated by it. But if the purpose of prayer is to get you to center on God, then you can have confidence that God's going to answer the prayer underneath the prayer. may not be that specific job, but God will honor your prayer for security and purpose in the world. He will always answer that prayer. Listen, here's another test. If you can't ask God to do it his way, then you have to stop and examine what your heart is really centering on. So for instance, if you can't say, God, I'm really, really praying to you about this thing. I want this thing so much. And, and I'm praying about this specific person or this specific job or this specific situation. And I really, really want it. But if there's some other way that you want to honor my prayer for love or intimacy or significance or purpose in this world, then do it your way, God. Don't do it my way. Do it your way. That's what I really want. If you can't pray like that, it's a good indication that your heart is centered on something else. That something else is your real master and king. That, that, that the gravitational pull of your heart is being weighted down by something else, all right? So here's the thing. The promise of petition means that, that you can ask and ask big. God delights to answer your prayers. But the purpose of petition means that, that when we get centered on God, that actually changes the way we pray, the promise of petition, we can ask and ask big. That means that we can lose that sense of futility. The purpose of petition, that we center on God and it changes the way we ask, that means we lose that sense of fear. Because our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. And that means that we can always know that God is going to answer the prayer underneath the prayer. He's always going to do that. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about the promise of petition, we've seen the purpose of petition, but lastly, we need to see the power for petition. Because here's the big question where are we going to get this confidence in God's care and this clarity about God's character? Where are we going to get it? David had it. Where are we going to get it? Think about this. If God's name is the manifestation of his character and his purposes in the world, where do we most clearly see that? On the night before he died, Jesus Christ gathered with his disciples for one last meal. And at the end of the meal, Jesus began praying. In John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus prayed, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus was saying, I am the ultimate manifestation of God's name, God's character, 
God's identity, the very essence of God in this world. Now listen, if Jesus, the creator of the universe, who came to earth in human flesh in order to manifest God's name, his character, his purposes in this world, even Jesus prayed, God, I want to glorify you. Jesus was constantly praying, God, Father, be glorified in me. I mean, think about that. You realize who Jesus is. He is the very embodiment of God's glory. And yet even Jesus Christ played, God, I want you to be glorified in me. I want to center on you. I want to glorify you. That was the prayer underneath all of Jesus' prayers. In fact, that was the prayer he was praying later that night when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, do you want to know how we can pray the prayer that David prays in verse 7? In in verse 7, David says, Father, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. How can we call upon the Father in the day of trouble and know that he's going to answer us? Because in his day of trouble, the Father did not answer Jesus. Because when he was in the garden, Jesus cried out, God, take away from me this cup of suffering. And the Father said, no. And later on the cross, Jesus cried out, quoting the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all he got was the Father ignored him. Jesus Christ, in his day of trouble on the cross, he cried out to the Father, pouring out his heart and petitioned to the Father. And in the day of his trouble, God ignored him. Why? So that in our day of trouble, God would always answer us. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, don't you realize who Jesus is? He's the true king. He's the ultimate master. And yet he's the the true king and master who on the cross became a servant so that he could free you from all the false masters that control your lives. When you see him doing that for you, that's how you know that you can trust this king. That's how you know that you can safely give your life to this master and serve him because he's the only master that already gave his life for you. Our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. Listen, I'm guessing that pretty much every single person in this room knows what it's like to call out to God, to pour out our hearts to God in prayer, and then to be bitterly disappointed. I remember when uh, many years ago I was living and working in Los Angeles as a musician. And uh, I got to a point in my life where I was uh, very frustrated with the direction of my career at that point. I was primarily a jazz musician, but I also loved playing classical music. And I thought, maybe, maybe I should you know, put the jazz aside and focus on playing classical music. Maybe that'll give me the direction and the purpose I'm looking for. So there were a couple of summer programs that would help me do that. So what I did was I made an audition tape and I sent my tape into the first program and then I prayed and I prayed and I prayed about it and they rejected me. And so I took that tape and I sent it to the second program and then I prayed and I prayed about that and that one rejected me too. I was so discouraged by that. I mean, I actually, I remember yelling at God. I was so angry because I was centering on my purposes in the world. But then a little bit after that, I had some friends that said, Eric, you know, come on, you're not really a classical guy. You're a jazz guy. Why don't you just move to New York? And so I started praying about that. And, and, but this time what I did was I started praying, God, okay, you know that I love music. I love playing music, but I want to serve you, Father. And, and maybe you're 
saying move to New York? I don't know. But you know that my prayer is for purpose and direction in this world. And I trust that you're going to answer this prayer. So I'm going to just start moving in that direction and taking steps towards that. And if that's what you want to happen, then I'm just going to trust you with the results of that. And so I started praying a prayer. I, I, I realized that um, I had a trip coming up in a few months. And I realized that if I wanted, I could arrange the trip so that I had a, about a week to go visit New York City and maybe even possibly find an apartment to live in while I was there. So I started praying a prayer. And, and this is what my prayer was. I said, God, please help me to find a room in, in, in Greenwich Village, which is um, uh, or in or close to Greenwich Village, which is where all the jazz clubs are, for less than $500 a month, and, and please let it have a big window looking out over the street because I don't want one of those side windows looking at another brick wall, okay? That was my prayer. I prayed that prayer every day, multiple times a day for weeks before I ever got to New York City. And then I arrived in New York on a Friday and I started looking at the ads in the paper back when we, they used newspaper for things like that. And um, I couldn't even find a studio in Brooklyn for less than $1,500 a month. Some of you are saying, wow, that sounds pretty cheap. This was 18 years ago. <laughs> By Sunday, three days later, I, I couldn't find anything until I noticed an ad that I had missed um, the first five times around. And the ad simply said this, nice renovation, $375 a month, West 22nd Street, which is just north of the village. And so... The thing I thought was either there's a one missing in front of that number or this place is gone. But I called the number and the place was still available and the next day I went to go take a look at it. And, and I remember arriving, the building was on a gorgeous street in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City, but the building itself was, well, we could just say it was a little shabby. Um, but the realtor walks me in and we start walking up the floors of the building and on each floor of the building there was a hallway with a bunch of rooms on the side but one room that would have been in the front with the window facing the street. And we're going up each floor of the building and I keep wondering to myself, when are we going to turn into a room? Until finally we get to the very top floor of the building and we're walking down the hall and the realtor's leading me to the end until he gets to the last row of all of the rooms he skips all the ones on the sides, and we get to the end of the hall, to the room facing the window on the street. And when he opened the door, I, I couldn't believe what was happening. Now, now, he opened the door, and it was an 8 by 10 room. <laughs> I am not exaggerating or minimizing. The cracked linoleum tile on the floor, the paint was peeling on the walls. It had a tiny little sink and a tiny little closet, and the bathroom was down this rickety hall down on the end of the hall. With, I was going to be sharing it with all my neighbors. It was nasty. But I walked in this room, and all I could see was this huge picture window looking out over the street. And I said to the realtor, This is awesome. <laughs> And he looked at me and he said, actually, it's not. <laughs> All I could say was, you don't understand. This is perfect. It was exactly what I had prayed for. Now, here's the thing. As amazing an answer to prayer as that was, I had no way of knowing at that time that God was using that little apartment to answer another much deeper, much bigger prayer that I wouldn't even pray for another four years. 
Because four years later, I started to get a sense that God was calling me to serve him no longer as a musician, but, but as, a, as a pastor in gospel ministry. And so um, the day that I um, found out that I got accepted to seminary, I got off the phone with the seminary that brought me here to St. Louis. I got off the phone and I started praying another prayer. And the prayer was, God, thank you so much for getting me into seminary. How am I going to pay for it? That day, I walked downstairs in my building, and the building owner called me in and said, Eric, we're turning this building into single-family residences, which means that every single one of you has to get out. But New York housing law states that we can't just kick you out. We either have to relocate you or buy you out. Which do you prefer? Long story short, the day I got in my car to move here to St. Louis, they cut me a check that basically paid for my education. Friends, God loves to answer your prayers. He delights to answer your prayers. He will always answer the prayer underneath the prayer. But our confidence in God's care is rooted in our clarity about God's character. The purpose of petition is not to get God to center on you and your purposes. It's to get you to center on God and his purposes in the world, to serve him, to glorify him. Friends, he is the only master and king that you can serve safely because he's the only master and king that already became a servant for you. He's the only master and king it's safe to give your life to because he's the only master and king that already gave his life for you. He will always answer the prayer underneath the prayers. You can know that this is a God who will do it. So ask. And ask big. But as you're asking, get centered on him. Get centered on him. Can you pray like this? God, I really, really, really want all of these things that I'm praying about. But you can do whatever you want with me. Have your way with my life. Can you pray like that? God can have his way with your life. Can you pray like that? You can center on this God because on the cross, this is a God who's centered on you. He will always answer the prayer underneath the prayers. May not look the way you want, in fact, most of the time, but he will always answer the prayer underneath the prayer. That's the kind of God he is. There's an old hymn that puts it like this. It says, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Do you believe that? Let's pray.